Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Michael Ramore from the City University of New York. Today I'm here to talk to Ned Burtz, Associate Professor of History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and the author of Diaspora and Nation in the Indian Ocean, Transnational Histories of Race and Space in Tanzania, published in 2015 by the University of Hawaii Press. Drawing on archival sources from both Tanzania and India, Diaspora and Nation in the Indian Ocean explores the history of Afro-Asian relations in 20th century Dar es Salaam, Tanzania's largest port city. Through our discussion of the book, we will learn about why the salience of colonial era racial categories in Dar es Salaam poses a methodological challenge for both nation-bound and diasporist ways of understanding post-colonial urban histories. Speaking from Tampa, Florida, I want to welcome Ned Burtz to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Uh, Thank you so much, Michael. I'm glad to be here speaking from Honolulu, Hawaii. Awesome. So let's just start um, with you and your bio. So can you just uh, start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that is, where you grew up, where you studied, how you became interested in this field? and any influential mentors or scholars who influenced your work along the way? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, So I grew up in a place called Chicago Heights in Illinois, south of uh, the city of Chicago. And I went downstate to Champaign-Urbana to the University of Illinois uh, for my undergraduate studies. Um, I don't think there was a blip on um, the horizon of the Indian Ocean at that point in my consciousness. I started out as an accounting major and picked up a history uh, double major eventually. I think the critical moment in that pivot was uh, a year studying abroad in the University of Aberdeen in Scotland where I took my first course on African history with um, the veteran uh, professor of East Africa there called Roy um, Bridges. And I think just, you know, like a lot of students who study abroad, your eyes are opened a bit. Um, And in my case, it was to the very visible colonial um, history of the British Empire that was visible all around me. So I decided to ditch um, a potential career as an accountant and uh, ended up in grad school for my master's and PhD at the University of Iowa. Um, There I had, yeah, I don't think I could have picked a better place um, to be. It really was a wonderful um, and nurturing program and institution um, at that time. Um, I sort of following on my inability to choose um, between accountancy and history, I I had a hard time choosing between African and Indian history. I was studying um, both uh, at the time there, uh, African history with uh, Professor Jim Giblin and Indian history with Professor Paul Greeno. 
And I also participated in a program called the Crossing Borders uh, program, which took batches of graduate students from different departments and threw them in classes together and encouraged them to do uh, to cross area studies boundaries um, and pick up uh, languages and sort of deep um, area studies of a second um, area. So I basically decided to proceed um, uh, in studying both India and Africa as a major um, field. Uh, and how that all came together was uh, through the turn to oceanic um, studies and really the rise of um, Indian Ocean studies, which provided um, a backdrop and a literature and sets of scholarships and models where I could pursue multiple interests um, uh, in terms of areas uh, in sort of one nah, uh, newish um, field. And so, yeah, that's that's how I got interested in the, the topic and then just sort of early fieldwork um, examples sort of put me on to thinking about um, the Indian Ocean in the 20th century uh, through um, how people's cosmopolitan experiences um, of it uh, played out in uh, Dar es Salaam and in Western um, India. Um, and yeah, just encounters with, with people who experience that Indian Ocean world um, basically motivated me to um, produce a book that um, uh, that represented their lives and would be recognizable to them at the same time. Great. So on that note, let's turn to the book. So um, how did the idea for diaspora nation in the Indian Ocean develop? What was your research process like and how did you experience the writing process as well? Yeah. So the book developed out of my uh, dissertation. I don't think it was quite fully germinated yet as an idea um, there. I, I conducted my PhD field work between 2000 and 2003 um, in both Tanzania and India, um, splitting time, and then um, through follow-up um, trips uh, after I completed the PhD in 2008. Um, in terms of the research process, I uh, worked primarily in archives and libraries uh, but also collected over 60 um, recorded um, uh, oral interviews for the book, um, too. And it was really a formative part, I think, of it um, to give me some of the ideas to, to produce it. Uh, in terms of the archives, I worked in the Tanzanian National Archives, which is rather small um, archives, but as a rich um, uh, repository of colonial era records in particular, uh, I worked at the National Archives of India um, in Delhi, uh, as well as the Maharashtra State Archives in um, Bombay. Uh, a bit later, after the PhD, I worked in Gujarat as well, through several branches of the Gujarat State Archives, and, and sort of have drawn on sources from all of these um, places to uh, try to uh, write a transnational um, history. Um, in terms of libraries, I was mostly looking at uh, newspaper um, records from Tanzania, um, and these were held at the University of Dar es Salaam, East Africana uh, collection, as well as the National Library of Tanzania. These are all hard copy um, newspapers, so you can imagine uh, what kind of um, shape they're in. They're just sort of stored on these um, dusty shelves and open um, air uh, libraries. So um, I'm hoping to keep consulting these uh, newspaper sources because I'm not certain how long they'll be with us. Uh, I worked in the Teen Murti Library in uh, New Delhi as well, um, which uh, holds collections of letters that I found very valuable between um, the All India Congress Committee and uh, nationalist activists in East Africa. Um, and then the interviews were, were done essentially in Gujarat, in Western India, on the subject of diaspora, and then in Tanzania on um, education uh, and cinema. And as I sit here in my office in Honolulu, I'm looking at stacks upon stacks of photocopies and little micro cassette recorded tapes and other things that I collected during the fieldwork, which uh, didn't get into the book, um, which is always, uh, I think, the case with uh, dissertation work. Uh, in terms of the writing, um, 
uh, yeah, I, I essentially added a, a chapter and thoroughly revised and reoriented the dissertation um, to embed it within um, Indian Ocean studies. It was written uh, significantly uh, here in Hawaii as well as in India while I was um, teaching on a study abroad um, program. And I think like a lot of our um, writing projects as uh, faculty members, and I think this just is worth saying uh, it's very difficult to get things done when you're teaching, especially when you're adapting to a job um, and with a timeline um, that orients everything towards the pressure to apply for uh, tenure. So all these kinds of external um, factors uh, come into the writing process. And um, when, yeah, when it comes out, it certainly feels uh, like um, very exciting, but quite a relief at the same time, too. Yeah, and you mentioned that um, part of this process was embedding the work within Indian Ocean Studies. So I wonder if you could uh, just say a little bit more about what the central problem in historical studies of the Indian Ocean and East African uh, urban spaces that you wanted the book to address. Yeah, and you know when I I mentioned that it, the dissertation wasn't quite what the book turned out to be, and this is in part because when I was writing the dissertation, uh, I don't think we had really seen um, the sort of full revitalization of Indian Ocean studies um, quite yet, and and I sort of sort of fell in um, as that was happening, um, and the the real key event in this was um, a conference which was held in 2002, at least for me, um, at UCLA on Indian Ocean Studies. It was a large conference that gathered um, lots of scholars. And, and I think it really sort of attempted to um, bring the field back um, after sort of, uh, I think, um, um, a, a quieter period uh, after the 70s and 80s. Um, and I, that really got me thinking that this is, right, this Indian Ocean um, backdrop is very useful for me um, to uh, sort of reconcile what I saw as these very cosmopolitan encounters in a place like Dar es Salaam. Uh, reconcile that with the fact that people held very sharp ideas about race at the same time. And I realized I could get at that um, sort of question by framing uh, an encounter between nations um, and diasporas uh, within the larger frame of the Indian Ocean, uh, the ways that diasporas and nations, in fact, um, become co-constitutive um, of each other. At that time, um, I, I don't think it's quite the issue today, but at that time, Indian Ocean histories were quite reluctant to move into the 20th century. The sort of the older literature is very strong on uh, the early modern um, Indian Ocean world. Uh, you know, there were some ideas early on that colonialism ruptured, you know, that world, which is, of course, true. Um, and the questions sort of remained, I think, historiographically, um, for how long does the Indian Ocean remain a viable frame for people's historical um, experiences? At what point do nations or other factors um, supersede it? Uh, I think key texts here, really 2006 and 2007, Shugata Bose's uh, 100 Horizon and Thomas Metcalfe's Imperial Connections uh, really did push the story into the 20th century. But just up until... Uh, the First World War or the Depression. Um, and I think only now we're starting to see some stuff come out on sort of post-World War II um, Indian Ocean history. But my book um, did uh, attempt um, to do that, to, you know, sort of trace um, what really were unstable racial um, identities uh, across um, the 20th century against that backdrop of uh, transnational um, influences uh, across the Indian Ocean world. So what you're seeing essentially is these racial identities being generated through all sorts of diverse um, cosmopolitan um, encounters that um, that frame is able to reveal um, and what, uh, I guess, nationalist histories or diasporist histories, as you mentioned, um, fail to capture. Yeah, that's a great segue to get into the specifics by turning to uh, the book and its chapters. So uh, the book consists of five chapters with an introduction and a conclusion. 
let's just go through them. So to start uh, with the introduction, I wonder if you could also uh, introduce our listeners to the historical background for the relationship between South Asians and Africans in Tanzania that you're exploring throughout the book. What were these connections and disconnections between Asian and African communities in colonial Tanganyika? Sure. Yeah, it's um, uh, there's a lot one could say about that. Uh, I'll try and do it briefly. It's it's a timely question. Just this weekend, I submitted um, an essay, um, uh, essentially one of those research encyclopedias, and the topic was Indians in Tanzania. Um, so uh, that will be useful. Essentially, the Indian diaspora in Tanzania emerged in waves um, from the Indian subcontinent. I think it's important to um, note that it doesn't emerge um, as a coherent diaspora. Um, uh, its hallmark has always been diversity, um, great religious diversity, uh, cultural diversity, some linguistic uh, diversity too. And it's o- only over time that um, the Indian diaspora in Tanzania uh, essentially becomes um, an identity or becomes a uh, political category. And this occurs uh, obviously through uh, colonialism and then um, the rise of nationalism. Most of these um, folks uh, come from Western India. There's a small number of Punjabis um, and um, a handful of other communities like Baluchis. Uh, but uh, uh, the diaspora is really dominated by Gujaratis um, and Kutchis. And, you know, this has been an important part of Indian Ocean studies for long, right? Um, early modern and, and, and previous periods that uh, that part, peninsular Gujarat and, and Kutch and Sindh um, in Pakistan today have long been active uh, participants within this Western Indian Ocean um, world. And the that contact really accelerates across the 19th century after the Sultan of Oman shifts his capital uh, to Zanzibar and attracts trade and migration from Western India, significantly Indian um, Muslims. The real boom time for immigration occurs after um, uh, the British uh, essentially um, uh, take control of East Africa um, and uh, invite settlement um, from India, although this is mostly free migration as opposed to um, Kenya, which does see the importation of indentured laborers. Um, the diaspora really starts to accrete um, into shape um, uh, under colonialism. So it really does become an imperial diaspora uh, in which uh, the communities um, come together and thrive. They obtain privileges which are denied um, to Africans. There's deep um, segregation. Um, and uh, I, I think another important thing to point out about this group is unlike the diaspora in Kenya and Uganda, this is a majority Muslim um, diaspora. So it's largely Shia Muslims of several different sects who slightly outnumber uh, collectively um, the Hindus uh, of the um, diaspora. Uh, the diaspora sort of goes through waves in the post-independence period of uncertainty um, due to um, uh, different shades of African nationalism, uh, due to turns to socialism. Um, about half of them leave um, East Africa and go to Canada and the United Kingdom, uh, but the rest um, remain and, and today continue to uh, live in urban centers like Dar es Salaam. Uh, with lives that revolve around commerce and community institutions. Thank you. And yeah, the other piece um, that you lay out in the introduction, which you uh, just alluded to a little bit, is the function of the Indian diaspora within African nationalist uh, political imaginaries. So in the introduction, you write that, simply put, ideas about the Indian diaspora were constitutive to African nationalists' conceptual foundation of a new nation and would remain so for decades after independence. So what ideas about diasporic Indians circulated in the African nationalist political imaginary, and why did these ideas prove so central? 
Um, yeah, thanks for that, Michael. It's it's nice when I see something I've written uh, very clearly and concisely. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> reacting to, um, you know, of course, readers' reports, which which you know ask us to excise jargon uh, occasionally. So yeah, thanks for flagging that one. Um, <laughs> and you know what I'm what I'm arguing here is is this idea that diaspora and nation are co-constitutive, right? That um, African nationalism, grassroots African nationalism, as it generates in Tanganyika, um, really takes into account uh, the position of Indians, of the diaspora, um, in shaping its contours. So there's, you know, I, I think different debates for how this played out historically. Um, you've got the arguments that African nationalism is essentially um, an African intellectual project that responds um, to colonialism, but, you know, essentially the, the, the agency is with the intellectual thought. And then you've got the argument that it's, it's derivative of uh, colonial categories of um, identity. And I, I think I'm arguing that both of these things um, are true, that there's a real struggle to define an African nationalist um, identity for the nation that becomes Tanzania. Um, but uh, to sort of enter the public discourse of, of uh, anti-colonial nationalism in some senses is to engage with the uh, extant political categories of rule under uh, colonial Tanganyika. And the way this played out, to speak directly to your question, is that African nationalism um, targets colonial privilege. And as part of that colonial privilege, of course, you see a relatively privileged uh, diaspora. And so the discourse, um, often, in fact, in nationalist discourse, um, like reading through press accounts and, and, um, and other accounts of the anti-colonial movement, focuses on the position of the diaspora as something that uh, uh, has to change after independence, right, which is um, anti-national. And in addition to this sort of discourse about privilege, um, African nationalism becomes uh, a territorialized um, nationalism, which demands a singular loyalty uh, to the to the nation as it um, is in formation. And this, of course, also uh, can focus on a diaspora which was perceived um, to be quite mobile. So both of these forms, right, the privilege and, and about territorialism, um, essentially generate different types of ideas, which informs and influences the construction of nationalism and uh, a national identity. And this sort of generative uh, dialectic between uh, categories and ideas about nations and diasporas uh, essentially continues um, after independence and, and, you know, I sort of, if you put it in, in Indian Ocean scale, it sort of rises and falls um, over time. But I, I think there's at least traces of it that are visible in the present. Yeah. So um, with that, let's turn to the um, following chapter, chapter one, Diaspora and Nation in the Indian Ocean. Um, so here I want to focus in a bit more on um, the methodological and theoretical contributions of the book. Um, so you began this chapter by writing that in East African studies, the scholarly division separating nation-centered and diasporist approaches inhibits the construction of an Indian Ocean framework. Um, so could you say more about the limitations presented by this opposition of nation-bound and um, diasporic methodologies and what an Indian Ocean framework would ideally offer in contrast? Um, you might also... Um, say a little bit more about how uh, the urban scale is important in the study, um, in this case of Dar es Salaam, um, in writing transnational histories like the one the book presents. Yeah, um, thanks um, for for that. Yeah, so in, in chapter one, it does think through this methodological challenge that you mentioned, and I identify essentially the, the ways that the diaspora has been studied has, um, you know, at the time of the production of the book was mostly through either nationalist um, or socialist Marxist um, uh, histories and historiographies that were produced in Tanzania after independence, 
um, in which, yeah, the you know Indians are essentially written out or marginalized or or seen as um, you know an, an extractive um, class. Uh, in diasporic uh, approaches, uh, essentially, um, you know, writes out um, the larger context. It focuses on Indians and exclusion. Um, sometimes it strains the literature, strains to sort of demonstrate an Indian contribution and therefore belonging um, to East Africa. But in neither of these um, approaches do I think we get a full accounting of how encounters worked between different um, groups. And this is where the, the transnational frame um, helps, right? A larger um, frame in which we can see both um, diaspora and nation um, sort of creating each other through um, these encounters. I think this aligns with moves in transnational studies in general, which demonstrates that nations are constructed in transnational fields. Uh, and also, um, this chapter tries to show how um, modern diasporas are created through engagements with um, with nations. Um, and of course, this uh, significantly involves the Indian um, government's um, interactions with uh, the diaspora in East Africa and um, elsewhere. So I, I tried to I tried to use some different, um, and motley methodologies in this chapter to sort of illuminate this, right? Essentially, the, um, the relationship between diaspora and nation in a larger um, Indian Ocean um, framework. Uh, the first part of the chapter uh, works with passport um, records, uh, which I found in a place called Rajkot. Rajkot was... Um, a town in Western India where there was a British residency. These are largely um, princely states um, in uh, Western, in Gujarat. Um, and uh, I had found a guide to the Gujarat State Archives that was produced, I think, in the 1980s. And it mentioned that Rajkot hosted um, passport records, which is why I made a trek to this district archives. And I asked the director of the archives um, if passport records were there. And he said, um, no, in fact, we don't have any uh, passport records. Um, upon which one of the workers who was um, sort of overhearing our conversation said, well, actually we do. And he went to this back room and pulled out this, this sheet, um, which just had um, uh, these registers that recorded all the passport applications for sets of years in the 1930s and 1940s and dropped it in a dusty heap on my desk uh, to work uh, through for the next week. And these records really helped me sort of um, think more about how people were circulating between Western India um, and uh, Eastern Africa and sort of challenge and disrupt notions of settled um, diasporas, um, but instead, you know, a diaspora that was in constant movement um, between Gujarat and um, and places like Dar es Salaam. Uh, the chapter moves on to um, work with interviews um, with people um, in Gujarat who essentially had returned there after living in East Africa or um, who had been left behind and other family members had um, migrated to East Africa. But I tried to show the ways that these relationships across the ocean were um, still uh, present and important in, in sustaining um, a transnational uh, diaspora. Um, and then the third part of the book uh, looked at the ways that the Indian government, in some senses, tried to nationalize, tried to make the diaspora in East Africa an Indian um, diaspora um, through. Uh, correspondence with activists in um, in East Africa, and so all of these sort of um, uh, different methodological approaches basically tried to tease out how nation and diaspora um, intersected across this larger scale of the Western um, Indian Ocean. The urban scale uh, that you asked about was more of a um, practical uh, device because I could sort of see these different urban locations in East Africa, in Dar es Salaam, um, as being deeply um, influenced by that transnational scale of the Indian Ocean world. And I, I tried to 
search out um, urban locations where uh, encounters between different communities um, occurred. And that way I could construct uh, essentially political, economic, social, and cultural histories of race is embedded in these particular urban spaces that in some senses reflect the larger Indian Ocean world writ large. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Thanks. Um, so chapter two, then, building colonial schools and constructing race. So both this chapter and the following chapter focus on the period prior to the mass mobilization of African nationalism. Here you examine how the British colonial state created a tripartite education system that was separated in terms of race. So how did the Indian diaspora react or contribute to the segregated education policies in colonial era Tanganyika? Yeah, they certainly did contribute um, to them, Michael. They did very little to resist them. Um, What resistance to segregated um, education systems uh, did occur, the um, really twofold. One, uh, there were occasional challenges Um, to the inequities in funding uh, between the three major racial groups in colonial East Africa. This would be the British um, white populations, the Indians and um, the Africans. There would be occasional challenges to the inequities, which of course funded the British um, schools more than the Indians. Very little, of course, was said on the Indian side about how little um, funding was going per uh, uh, capita per pupil to the African schools. The other um, sort of response um, to the segregated education policies in terms of resistance came from uh, the most prominent community in the diaspora in the colonial period, um, which were the Ismailis, and these are the Shia Muslim followers of the Aga Khan. Uh, who um, are also scattered um, across the Indian Ocean um, world. And essentially the Ismailis, and this is a thread that runs um, through the colonial period, resist um, the label of Indian, resist being lumped together with um, the other uh, Indian um, communities. And and thanks to sort of their transnational funding uh, and networks um, through the Aga Khan, um, the Ismailis are able to set up um, community uh, schools, which were occasionally separate, um, uh, but classified under the Indian, um, but um, sort of the Indian part of the tripart educational system, but were run essentially by the um, Ismailis. The other ways that uh, the Indian diaspora really sustained the um, tripart segregated uh, education system was through uh, the importation of teachers and educational content um, from India. So, um, yeah, there was there was a traffic essentially um, of teachers that sailed uh, across the ocean to um, teach and sometimes settle, but more often to uh, rotate back to um, India. Um, textbooks and things like that were brought in. Um, uh, through diasporic networks to um, uh, to run these schools, uh, the medium of instruction was largely Gujarati, um, religious, uh, both Hindu and Muslim um, uh, classes and subjects were were taught 
um, uh, two. And all of this essentially functioned uh, to sustain privilege, right? Um, the education uh, as it emerged in these schools was much more literary and commercial um, than agricultural and vocational, which is how it was programmed by the colonial government for um, its African um, subjects. Um, and this privilege, you know, uh, essentially does over time um, make more tangible, make more real uh, the category of Indian, despite the fact that you have these internally fractious episodes and, and encounters um, within the Indian diaspora. Um, uh, the educational system and its, its separation from the other groups really um, uh, creates this identity, uh, protects privilege and wealth, and uh, creates other kinds of opportunities. The, there were occasional movements um, in terms of the segregated ed education to attempt to, through pan-Islamic um, movements, uh, so this, this, these were Muslim organizations that tried to create um, schools to rectify imbalances um, with uh, Christians in East Africa. The original schools, as you might imagine, were largely mission-founded um, schools. So there was a disparity, as there continues to be uh, to the present in Tanzania, uh, between Christians and Muslims um, in education. Um, and the Indians sometimes participated in these attempts um, by Muslim organizations to create better schools um, for their children. Sometimes this came, most of the times this came uh, in terms of philanthropy, right? donations by Indian organizations to these um, groups. Uh, but uh, largely these movements fail um, over time due to a lack of government support, a lack of access uh, to teachers um, and so on. So. Yeah, I mean, the Indian diaspora is central, right, um, to the sustenance of uh, segregated education in, in colonial uh, Tanganyika. Thank you. Um, and yeah, in addition to education, um, a sort of another uh, key case study in the book, which is uh, the subject of chapter three, Indian Ocean World Cinema, are these um, colonial era cinema halls of Dar es Salaam, which you describe as um, unruly and cosmopolitan spaces that prompted the colonial authorities to attempt to break up audiences according to the official racial classifications outlined in uh, the previous chapter. So what was it about this cinematic culture that the British colonial authorities found so threatening? Yeah, a lot of things. Um, and I think this is what drew me to it. I'll, I'll just note as an aside that um, as a young graduate student in, I think it was 1996, I was a first year MA student, uh, spending the summer in Dar es Salaam, you know, sort of um, my first extended fieldwork um, experience overseas. And one evening, with uh, a couple of friends, we went to the cinema. Um, it was called the Empire uh, Cinema on Maktaba um, Street in central Dar es Salaam. Um, and I just felt like I was transported into a entirely different world because we ended up watching a Bollywood film. It was the first Bollywood film I'd ever seen in my life, and it changed my life. <laughs> I actually um, teach a class now on understanding Indian history through um, Bollywood. So I've sort of taken on what began as a hobby um, uh, as an academic uh, subject, too. And that Empire Cinema, when I walked in that day, I had no clue that the Empire Cinema was founded in 1929 and has a long and vast um, history, which is very revealing uh, to understandings of colonialism, to understandings of nationalism, to understandings um, of uh, race uh, until it was sadly knocked down, I think, right around the turn of the 21st century. So it, the, these cinemas were unruly for a couple of different reasons. Uh, they were threatening um, to British colonial control um, for a number of different reasons. Uh, one, you know, these are not government spaces. And so um, they're trying, they're attempting to regulate what essentially were privatized 
um, leisure spaces. So there was always that uncertainty. Um, they're threatening to British conceptions of race um, for different reasons too. One, because eventually groups, uh, as I'll mention here in a second, do come together um, and violate sort of British attempts to structure um, and shape Dar es Salaam um, on a segregated basis. The entire city, right, was classified into different racial zones. There was um, zone one, which was the government um, British white area where residences and government offices were. There was a zone two, right, um, which was zone four. Indian commerce and residences, and then a zone three, sort of a densely populated African um, part of town. And while, you know, you could cross the city, uh, this is, these are larger patterns of residential segregation that they, uh, uh, you know, used as, as tools of um, colonial control. And the cinemas were located largely in the Indian areas, although other ones do open up. And so, uh, they become unruly for this reason, because uh, different groups, whites, uh, Indians, and Africans all could eventually access um, the cinema. Another reason why they were unruly um, is that, you know, cinema comes to East Africa in the 1920s. Um, so not long after, you know, Hollywood really is taking off. And it was a new medium of technology, uh, and there was a lot of extensive hand-wringing empire-wide about the impact of cinematic technologies on um, uh, colonial subjects, um, especially in Africa. And so um, reports circulated across the empire, essentially um, speculating wildly about um, what cinema might do, right, and what its threat was potentially to colonial um, control. They become unruly, too, because ideas of nationalism uh, could enter cinematic content. And that, of course, also always makes uh, colonial officials um, nervous. Uh, in terms of the sort of racialized ideas that the British held um, about uh, cinema, um, and its potential for disruption in East Africa. There's a lot of the usual bogeys um, that you hear to the present that, you know, what one sees on screen will inspire um, imitation, in particular through violence or immoral um, activities. But there is also assumption that um, Africans, and again, this is, these are the racial assumptions that British officials held in, you know, the 1920s and 1930s, uh, that they wouldn't be able to read um, cinema properly. And the story that got magnified and constantly circulated, um, and it's almost surely an apocryphal story, was this tale of um, a British mobile cinema coming to a village, erecting a screen, um, and you know, playing a very didactic um, film about malaria eradication. And at one point, the film sort of zooms in on a mosquito just to identify the source of the malarial transmission. And two of the Africans in the audience um, are sort of joking with each other. And one says to the other, well, of course, that's why they're afraid of malaria in their country. Their mosquitoes are as big as elephants because it had been magnified um, on the screen. So all of these reasons, right, the technology reason, ideas of race, the fact that it's a privatized leisure space, that boundaries are being crossed racially, um, turns cinema halls into these really critical and important urban um, spaces that are politicized, are racialized, and um, is an example of um, trying to sort of tease out the longer um, history of racial encounters through in urban space. Uh, very early on, the British attempt to essentially replicate um, aspects of um, racial segregation from the, the education system, from the town in cinemas, uh, but it breaks down really um, quickly. And this is largely due to challenges from um, elite educated uh, Africans. This is sort of pre-nationalism, but as it's um, starting to take shape, um, there were these complaints that 
um, that they're being kept out of cinema, right? That they really wanted to uh, attend these important um, public um, spaces. And and the challenges to the racial bars um, uh, made the British quite nervous that uh, keeping these restrictions in place would uh, generate um, discord and uh, an eventual um, opposition to colonial rule. So, in fact, by 1936, very early on in the history, racial bars are lifted um, at the cinema hall, and the only tool to sort of regulate um, the cinemas uh, was essentially um, censorship. So that means that um, uh, these were open to all, um, uh, but yet, you know, of course, this doesn't mean they're equal spaces, right? Um, segregation still occurs based on individual cinema halls, based on how much they charge for tickets, where people um, sit. Uh, the halls are almost all run by Indian entrepreneurs, too. And occasionally um, there would be tensions that arise over um, the harassment or ill treatment of African patrons. Um, and just a, just a one last note. Um, it, uh, I, I think it's easy to conceive of a place like Dar es Salaam as a backwater in the sort of flow of transnational cinema, but Dar es Salaam was without doubt the cinema capital of East Africa. Hundreds of films were coming from early on. There were many, many, something like eight, nine, ten cinema halls at one point in Dar es Salaam. Um, and they're getting films from all over the world, right? British films at first, um, Hollywood films, uh, uh, films from India. There, there are Arab films coming in uh, and occasionally British produced um, films, too. Thanks. Um, and we'll come back to those threads um, in a later chapter because the next couple of uh, chapters extend both of the case studies that you're just speaking to. Um, to post-independence context. So first we return um, to those threads on education in chapter four, Educating the Nation. Um, and so this chapter discusses how colonial ideologies of race continued to circulate in anti-colonial and post-colonial contexts, despite uh, President Julius Nyerere's policies of non-racial African socialism. So what was the persistent um, political utility of race as a category for anti-colonial nationalism? Yeah, I think it extends on what I was saying um, previously about African nationalism as um, targeting privilege um, and uh, mobility um, as it becomes territorialized. And so the language of race um, uh, essentially continues to be effective in targeting inequalities. And um, as you might imagine, the inequalities that are structurally embedded for decades in the segregated um, tiers of education um, uh, continue. And, you know, really these foundations are, are still visible um, to the present. And, and uh, you know, this continues to be in part because um, of uh, Indian diasporas. Uh, really transnational networks of um, funding um, and, uh, and knowledge um, and movement. Uh, so the race essentially um, was useful to call out class um, inequalities that uh, remain racially marked in the post-independent period. Uh, President Nerede was, was a true non-racialist. Um, but any programs that seek to rectify inequalities uh, on a racial basis have to address um, issues of race in order to um, accomplish things. And while he yeah. um, doesn't um, sort of uh, endorse very vigorous Africanization uh, policies, um, integration in schools goes slowly and frustration um, grew. Uh, this starts to pick up eventually in the late 1960s when Tanzania um, finally uh, does away um, against uh, Indian protest um, with the segregated um, sets of schools and kids are all thrown um, together. But this period really only lasts for about 20 um, years uh, um, because the, the government essentially uh, uh, with only a handful of exceptions, did not allow um, uh, private um, schools. Uh, 
this starts to change with the arrival of liberalization um, in the 1980s. And I have some, some really poignant quotes from teachers um, a decade or two after that saying that essentially all the gains of integration that were accomplished after the turn to socialism are now being um, stripped away uh, because there's been a move um, to um, uh, private um, schools and the best schools um, end up um, being private and many of them are run um, by various um, Indian diasporic uh, communities. These are integrated schools. But oftentimes in my interviews um, with headmasters, uh, uh, you would see essentially uh, the school being about two thirds Indian and one third um, African in a city, which um, obviously the Indians are a tiny, tiny, uh, tiny um, minority. And so these kinds of class um, disparities uh, uh, essentially point to the fact that education continues to protect racial um, privilege. And therefore, the language of race uh, simply points out this kind of segregation and protection of privilege and, you know, drawing on some of the, the transnational support networks as anti-national um, in some sense. And so it retains a political valence, um, I think, uh, deep into the post-colonial period. Yeah, and then turning back to those um, potentially disobedient spaces of the cinema halls um, in Chapter 5, transnational films and national cinema halls. Um, so here we're returning to the cinema in that post-colonial context. So how did the languages of race that you spoke to earlier um, in the Tanzanian uh, cinema halls change after independence? In this new context, how did the cinema encourage or resist tethering ethnic identity to conceptions uh, those territorialized conceptions you spoke to of post-colonial citizenship? Yeah, um, great, um, great question. Um, it, yeah, you would think that things would um, be fairly smooth after independence um, at the cinema hall, but it turns out that cinema essentially continued uh, to be um, these flashpoints of controversy um, after independence. And this is on two fronts, both cinema as a text, right? What what's on screen, um, but cinema halls also um, as these very complicated social spaces that host um, diverse encounters of groups, but also content um, on uh, screen. So while you have sort of nationalist discourses um, about creating uh, a national cultural project. Uh, especially in the socialist um, period, you see targets, um, a targeting of international films, right, as being um, un-African, not sort of um, endorsing or promoting um, the kinds of values, cultural values, as well as political values that um, that Tanzania was attempting to build through its project of African um, socialism in the um, 1960s and 70s um, and um, onwards. But again, the spaces remain unruly because the state can't really control um, the content in cinema halls. There are some attempts, like there were in the colonial period, to produce um, content. Uh, so when the government does um, produce a film for uh uh, did produce a film for the screen. It, it typically flopped um, because cinema goers were more sophisticated than uh, government messaging. Um, and uh, they wanted, you know, commercial and, and popular uh, cinema. So that remains the most um, lucrative, uh, despite the fact that it, it sits uncomfortably sometimes with the kind of nation that uh, uh, the state was attempting um, to um, to build. Uh, it was interesting. So there's a couple of sort of side uh, points to make about this. One is when international fare was criticized, it was almost always uh, Western um, fare. So there were real campaigns against um, James Bond films um, were um, banned because obviously the bogey in a lot of those was um, were the Russians, right? Um, in that time period. Um, 
the Godfather was banned um, because it was um, unsocialist accumulation of wealth was at the, <laughs> the heart of it, um, and and those kinds of things. But Hindi films, Indian cinema was was completely ignored. And so it was just as international or transnational as Western films coming into uh, Tanzania, but they were essentially seen as innocuous and less clashing with um, uh, with the ideals of African um, socialism, Tanzanian socialism. Uh, and so in some senses, what, what you see here is that, you know, there's an Indian Ocean culture of cinema, which is prevalent and had been for decades as the most popular films did come from India more than um, the Hollywood films. And, and those align with national values much more than other ones. Uh, and this creates, but but all of this reliance on international films at the time of Tanzania was trying to build a um, a self reliant socialist nation. Uh, you know, I have one government official uh, quoted in the book saying that um, we are essentially attempting to fund ujamaa, right, which was um, the Swahili word for. Um, African socialism in Tanzania by taxing, you know, Hindi films that are coming in from India. Um, so it just creates these weird um, ideological um, moments and uh, tensions. Um, you still do see social encounters uh, at the cinema hall too um, that are based on ideas about race. Um, the cinemas remain Indian run. Um, there's a lot of consternation over um, black market um, tickets and scalping uh, and, you know, fairly consistently African complaints about it um, uh, showed up in uh, newspapers in the post-colonial um, period, but they become increasingly assertive um, using the language of race once again to, you know, um, argue that these are now anti-national as opposed to simply immoral or economically uh, shady um, moves. And this story really carries on until about the turn of the 21st century when liberalization by that point and transmission of satellite um, movies and, and television, circulation of um, VCRs uh, prior to that uh, essentially kills off these cinema halls. When I had mentioned that uh, Dar es Salaam was really the cap cinema capital of East Africa, I should point out that the cinemas I'm talking about, too, are not small. Um, you know, these are sometimes 600, 800 seat cinemas. They're the large Art Deco, massive ones with balconies um, and uh, the like. And those are all gone. Those are no longer um, after the age of liberalization. And we are now into um, uh, the era of multiplex small screens in Tanzania. And along those lines, um, the final chapter, the conclusion, uh, brings things more squarely to the present post-liberalization. Um, so here you note that uh, modern Dar es Salaam would be scarcely recognizable to the nationalist-inspired residents of Tanganyika who gazed into an independent future and asked whether or not Africans and Indians travel in the same boat. So um, how do those racial identifications that we've traced throughout the book um, and in our conversation today uh, manifest in um, contemporary Dar es Salaam and why is it so crucial to understand their provenance? Yeah, that, that's a great way to um, uh, sort of move towards wrapping um, this up. Um, you know, the shifting story of how racial um, interactions and relations worked, I think, throughout the colonial and post-colonial period um, help us just understand broader um, historical changes uh, in the region and in the um, wider Indian Ocean world, um, frankly, at the same time. Um, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this through teaching this semester, but it, it's clear, um, you know, after all the protests that we've seen this summer that Race remains a, you know, deeply powerful instrument of oppression um, and resistance at the same time. And the shifting story of, you know, of, of race in, in East Africa, in Tanzania, in Dar es Salaam, uh, really helps us think about um, uh, politics and, and, and culture and the economy 
really across 20th century and into 21st um, century uh, Tanzania, where it it's different, right? And this is one thing that the the point that the conclusion argues is that the tethers between urban space in particular and race are now looser. Race is functioning in a different um, way. This is in part because liberalization um, sort of privatized um, these uh, urban spaces. It becomes less anti-national to have something like a private school. Um, throughout, you know, the state has lacked the resources or the will um, to sort of shape um, these uh uh, to shape a um, cultural identity through um, through control of the urban spaces. And, you know, nationalism too has shifted. And this is, you know, I'm obviously throughout the book, I'm, I'm thinking about nation and diaspora at the same time. I'm thinking about race. And uh, yeah, in, in the 21st century, it's clear that majoritarian um, nationalism has shifted in its concerns. Um, there was a period... Um, when liberalization first sort of took off in which um, really uh, the largest complaints were against South Africans buying up um, property. And now it's the Chinese, right, um, are obviously um, a racially marked group who have increased in great numbers um, on the ground in Tanzania. Um, racial belonging is also less sort of um, critical uh, than it was um, previously. Uh, I think issues of corruption and poverty and foreigners from um, neighboring African countries taking jobs um, are, are more concerning to uh, nationalists, uh, including the current um, president of Tanzania, who's up for election in about three weeks. Um, the African middle class has gotten much, much larger um, too. So all of these things mean that uh, in some senses over the decades, uh, this Indian Ocean world diaspora of Indians in Tanzania is an old and familiar um, one. And it really draws less consternation now than at many political moments throughout the history of the region. And I think that says a lot about sort of the broad implications, the transnational implications of these East African case studies and your book um, for these contemporary struggles. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so, Ned, I've taken up a lot of your time, um, but before we sign off, um, could you just say a little bit about what you're working on now? What are your current and future projects or what would you like to you know, hope to work on? What's going on? Yeah, 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 yeah. Working on anything these days is tough, as I'm yeah. sure you, you know, too. Uh, like I mentioned, I just submitted um, uh, a long research essay on Indians in Tanzania for the OUP Research Encyclopedia of African History. So hopefully that will come out um, soon. Uh, I'm working on trying to Zoom online and become a, a Zoom Jedi for my students, which has good days and bad days. I am in the middle of starting um, research on a new book project, and I have I had a semester-long sabbatical in uh, New Delhi as well as uh, last summer I spent in Dar es Salaam um, uh, working on collecting research for it. Uh, the, the, the pandemic has obviously stalled this because travel and applying for fellowships um, is challenging right now. The basic idea of the book um, is to write a transnational history of decolonization uh, centered on the Western Indian Ocean world, right? So the basic research question is how did decolonization from uh, the post-World War II period through the late 1970s restructure how the Indian Ocean world uh, functioned in terms of its mobilities, in terms of its ideologies, in terms of its identities. Uh, so at first, I want to think about how the partition of India, and in particular, the partition of the border uh, between India and Pakistan and Gujarat, uh, Kutch, and Sindh, reshaped East Africa's relationship with Western India and impacted larger Indian Ocean world diasporic, economic, and religious networks, right? When, you know, the creation of a Islamic state in Pakistan, um, uh, uh, the erection of borders, right? The, the removal of imperial connections. Um, uh, and then take that story forth 
um, from the 1940s uh, to the period of African decolonization in the 1960s and 1970s, when in Tanzania you see the nation sort of once again focusing on Tanzania um, strides out into a world in which the Indian Ocean is getting reconfigured and it has to balance its uh, political and international alliances amongst regional neighbors, um, the Cold War, uh, relationships with China, um, India, and so on. And, you know, the way the government acted had long-term um, and dramatic repercussions for its citizens in terms of how they could identify, how they could travel, um, and how they could structure lives in the Western Indian Ocean world. So that's what I'm, I'm uh, working on uh, um, these days. And hopefully, uh, yeah, space will open up to take that research back to East Africa and to India sometime soon. That sounds great. I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you. Um, thanks, Ned, for going over the book with our listeners. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you, Michael. I, I did as well. I appreciate your questions and close reading and um, and wish you the best with your work too. Thank you. And that concludes today's episode in which we explored diaspora nation in the Indian Ocean, transnational histories of race and space in Tanzania, published in 2015 by the University of Hawaii Press. This is your host, Michael Rumore. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.